I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We've been going through the book of Hebrews for about two years, and as we got to chapter 13 and verse 15, we've kind of paused a little bit and settled down here because I think there's something here that we need to understand and we need to be challenged about. And that's the subject of worship. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And the writer is challenging his Jewish readers to leave the trappings of their old religion and come by faith to Jesus Christ. And the obvious question that comes up is, well, if we leave the temple and we leave the priests and we leave the sacrifices, how are we going to worship? And in this last chapter, he tells us that as Christians in verse 10, we have an altar. But it's not the brazen altar in the temple where they offered the sacrifices day after day after day. We have an altar that is outside the city. It's the cross of Jesus Christ where He offered one sacrifice for our sins forever. And not only that, but when we come to faith in Him, we each become priests. And verses 15 and 16 tell us that we now offer up sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Not offerings for sin, but thank offerings that we give to God. And so verses 15 to 16 tell us how to worship as Christians. And this morning, I want to clarify seven common misunderstandings about worship. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is, worship is not just a priority. It's my purpose. Turn over a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that means kingly priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that... Why did God choose us and save us and make us His own? Why did God make us royal priests? Notice the rest of the verse. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God chose you and saved you and made you His own, made you a royal priest so that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. That is your purpose, and that is why you exist. Apart from the Bible, one of the most profound sentences ever written is the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper, in his book Desiring God, modifies it this way. He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And I think that's a great little subtle nuance. The idea is that when I really enjoy God, then I will praise Him. You see, if you are a joyless, grim Christian gritting your teeth trying to bear it to the end, 
you're not a very good advertisement for how good God is. We are to enjoy Him. And because we enjoy Him so much, we glorify Him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, portrays this same concept. He says, the most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their lovers, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I experienced that last time I went to Colorado. I went by myself. So I was out there sitting in the mountains looking at these amazing scenes and I had no one to share it with. I was wanting to walk up to perfect strangers and say, look at that! You see, we, we see something amazing and we want to proclaim it. We want to tell somebody. Well, worship is viewing God for who He is. Realizing how great He is, how awesome He is, how wonderful He is. And in the enjoyment of who He is, wanting to proclaim, not only to others, but to Him. To say, wow, look at God. See, that's our purpose in life. It's not just going to be our purpose here. It's going to be our purpose for eternity. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2, 6. Seven. I know it well. It says in the ages to come, God is going to show us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us. That tells me we haven't figured out God yet. He's an infinite God. And in the ages to come, He's going to continue to display His grace to us. And as we come to realize how amazing He is, how wonderful He is, and as we enjoy His grace, we're going to spend eternity praising Him. That's why the book of Revelation is so filled with praise because that's what heaven is all about. It's not just a priority that you need to get around to one of these days. It is your purpose in life. Second misconception about worship. It's not just felt, it's expressed. See, it's not just enough to feel adoration or appreciation for God. Praise doesn't occur until you express it. That's why Hebrews 13.15 says that the sacrifice of praise must be the fruit of lips. It has to come to our lips and be expressed to be worshipped. In his book, The Hallelujah Factor, Jack Taylor says, Praise is always active, assertive, demonstrative, and open. It is not passive, presumptuous, undemonstrative, or secretive. Whenever it is mentioned in the Bible, movement, action, sounds, and songs are seen and heard. In fact, the truth is that worship can't be silenced. 
Remember when Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19? The people were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the King! And the Pharisees got upset about this vocal outburst of praise and so they came to Jesus and they said, Rebuke your disciples! And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, praise is not a mental exercise or a heart feeling. It must be expressed. Someone has said, a bell is not a bell until you ring it. A song is not a song until you sing it. And praise is not praise until you express it. Now, praise can be expressed in words, but that's not the only way it's expressed. We saw a couple weeks ago that it's expressed in our body languages. The Bible talks about lifting your eyes and lifting your hands and dancing and kneeling and bowing down and lying prostrate. But that's not the only way it's expressed either. Because look at verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 13. After talking about the sacrifice of praise, he says in verse 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Do good and share. That sounds like what you tell your kids when you drop them off at the nursery. You be good and you share. Why do we tell them that? Because it doesn't come natural. It's a sacrifice. Doing good is a general term for all kinds of practical kindness to others. Sharing is the Greek word koinonia. We know that word. We usually think of it in terms of sharing Jesus with each other. But it's really a broader term. In the early church, it meant sharing all of your possessions with others to meet their needs. And so worship is not just praising God. It's providing for His children. These two verses together kind of remind me of the time when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then He says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, it's not just a matter of worshiping God by directing our praise to Him. We worship God by taking care of His children. John says in 1 John 4.20, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, the sacrifice of praise in verse 15 has to be accompanied by the sacrifice of doing good in verse 16. Praise of God in word and deed are inseparable. Worship is a way of life. Lip service must be accompanied by life service. Third misconception. It's not just public, it's private. Worship is not just a public thing that we do when we gather together on Sunday. We should worship every day of our lives. That's why Hebrews 13.15 says we're to do it continually. You're to worship God in your daily quiet time. You're to worship God in the shower, in your car, when you're jogging. In Psalm 34, verse 1, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. That's private. Worship is a way of life. But then he says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. 
and let us exalt His name together. That's public. That's corporate worship. You see, if you are not worshiping God privately on a regular basis, then you're probably not going to be tuned into worship when you gather together corporately. You're going to find yourself as a worship spectator rather than a worshiper. You'll be attending the worship service rather than worshiping. I love Psalm 100, verse 4. It says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. You see, you're not to come in here on Sunday and, and hope to crank up some worship. You're to come through the doors worshiping because you've been doing so in private all week. Fourth misconception. Worship is not about me. It's about God. The chorus we sing says it all. It's all about You, Jesus. And all this is for You. For Your glory and Your fame. It's not about me as if You should do things my way. You alone are God. And I surrender to Your ways. When we worship with true worship, there is an audience of one. And that is God. The question is not, how did you like the worship service? The question is, how did God like the worship service? You see, worship is not about pleasing you. It's about pleasing God. And we talked about that in detail in last week's message. Look at Ezra chapter 3. If you can't find Ezra, it's right before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 3, they laid the foundation for the rebuilding of the temple and then they paused and kind of had a groundbreaking ceremony or a foundation laying ceremony. And in Ezra chapter 3, I want you to notice what happens in verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of, the king, of King David of Israel. Now, they're going to have a celebration. Why did the priests have trumpets and the Levites have symbols? Well, it tells us at the end of the verse. It's because David told them to. Now, what's interesting is if you get the historical perspective of this, David has been dead for over four centuries. So how did David tell them how to have this worship service? Well, the answer is he wrote it down in Psalm 150 where he says, Praise the Lord with trumpet sound and with loud cymbals. You see, their worship guide was the Bible. And we have the same worship guide. 
people always want to know if we have contemporary worship or blended worship or traditional worship or liturgical worship or... I don't even like those phrases. My goal is that we would have biblical worship. They worshipped this way because the Bible said so. In fact, look at verse 11. It says, They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. You know where they got that song? Psalm 118. It's a combination of verses 1 and 3, which indicates to me they probably sang the whole psalm. They sang Psalm 118. And how did they express their praise and thanksgiving to the Lord? They sang. Now, if you say, I don't sing, then I would say, then you're not worshiping. Worshiping or, or, or singing is not the only expression of worship, but it's one of the primary ones. You can say, like me, I don't sing well. People always told me I was a prison singer. Behind a few bars. And I can never find the key. But if you stand near me, you know that I sing anyway. I make a joyful noise to the Lord. Because that's a major part of our worship. It's also one of the most controversial areas. Throughout the history of the church, there have been disagreements about what to sing and how to sing it. In the 3rd and 4th century, there were struggles over the use of musical instruments. In the 4th century, the use of choirs caused problems. Some groups organized choirs of men only. They didn't let women sing. In response to that, other groups had choirs of women and boys only. Others rejected music completely and preferred silence. And over the centuries, worshipers became further and further removed from worship, eventually just sitting and observing as the professionals, the trained clergy, sang and responded in worship. Martin Luther, a leader of the Reformation in the 16th century, protested, saying, quote, let God speak directly to His people through the Scriptures and let His people respond with grateful songs of praise. And so new songs were raised in worship. And because the church had virtually lost its song, Luther borrowed tunes from secular German folk music and he helped create a controversial new type of song called the hymn. Other reformers like John Calvin also brought back congregational singing, but said that only Scripture could be sung, but without instruments. And that became the style for most English-speaking churches for the next two centuries. It's very possible that we would be still singing only Scripture texts a cappella with no harmonies, except for a young man by the name of Isaac Watts. Watts was the son of a preacher. One day in his late teens, he came home after church and complained to his father about the dull worship music. And his father, like any good parent, 
said, don't complain unless you can do better. So he did. He wrote hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and At the Cross, and Joy to the World. 19th century introduced a new concern. Church music actually borrowed from popular secular songs and dance tunes. Probably no song is more loved than Amazing Grace. However, the first listeners to that melody would not have agreed because it was a plantation love song. And not until the moving lyrics of a converted slave trader named John Newton were put with this tune did it become a spiritual song. In early America, the tune to the song Revive Us Again or Hallelujah Thine the Glory was a barroom drinking song. Its original title was Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. Standing on the Promises was a march written in the time of John Philip Sousa when marches were the most common ballroom dances. Jesus is all the world to me was an Irish jig of the same style and speed as when Johnny comes marching home again. When the old favorite, since Jesus came into my heart, was first introduced, much of the Christian community rose up in arms because of the syncopated beat to the song. Since Jesus came into my heart. You know that one? It was re- I've got a cold right now. I'm usually better than this. It was reflective of the popular ragtime music of the day and many were shocked at singing the name of Jesus to a beat. However, it's interesting with the passage of time that these new forms and sounds became so much a part of worship language that they no longer seem new. You know, that controversy stirs on today. I found these top ten reasons for opposing the current trends in worship music. Number one, it's too new like an unknown language. Number two, it's not as melodious as the more established style. Number three, there are so many songs it's impossible to learn them all. Four, this new music creates disturbances and causes people to act in an indecent and disorderly manner. Number five, it places too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics. Six, the lyrics are often worldly, even blasphemous. Seven, it's not needed since preceding generations have gone to heaven without it. Eight, it's a contrivance to get money. Nine, it monopolizes the Christian's time and encourages them to stay out late. Ten, these new musicians are young upstarts and some of them are lewd and loose persons. You know who wrote that? It was written by Thomas Symes in New England in 1723. And he was objecting to the use of hymns. You see, the more things change the more they stay the same. I think it's natural for us to prefer songs we're familiar with. Kind of like that old pair of shoes. You keep slipping them on because they just feel comfy. 
And music is a powerful medium. We often attach memories to music. Sometimes when you hear a hymn, you think about a certain time in your life or a certain song. I've had people tell me, I cry every time I sing that hymn because it was Mama's favorite. And I kind of think, you know, am I supposed to be singing songs of worship and thinking about Mama? Or am I supposed to be worshiping the Lord? You know, the Bible says in Psalm 96.1, Sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. Not just the old song. A new song. And of course, every song at some point in time was a new song. And biblical worship has variety. Ephesians 5.19 calls for psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. There's variety in the songs we sing to God. You say, well, I don't like those new choruses. There's too much repetition. Read Psalm 136. It begins this way. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And then it repeats that phrase 26 times. Apparently, there are times when God likes repetition. It always amuses me that some people would never lift their hands to the Lord, even though the Bible tells us to. But those same people will close their eyes when they pray, even though the Bible never tells us to do that. You see, we're not always as biblical as we think we are. And if we're going to worship biblically, we have to be open to listen to God's direction in His Word. You see, if we're not careful, we start evaluating worship based on what pleases us rather than on what pleases God. Still here? Okay. Misconception number five. It's not just quiet, it's loud. Look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95 begins this way. Oh, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And then when you slide down to verse 6, He says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That tells me that shouting joyfully and bowing humbly are both expressions of worship. I think this is an important point because some people like to say that quiet reflection is more reverent. In fact, I have been in churches where they actually have Habakkuk 2.20 written over the door to the auditorium. 
Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Kind of sets the tone when you walk in. You're kind of like... You know, if you go back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and read the chapter, it's not a chapter about worship. It's a chapter about judgment. All the world is silent before Him because they're guilty before Him in judgment. But my Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we are not here to be silent. We are here to celebrate. Worship should be reverent, but reverent doesn't mean quiet. The word reverence means to revere, to honor, to respect. In the New Testament, that word is used five times in the King James Version. Interestingly enough, it's never used of God in the New Testament. It's the word used in Ephesians 5 where wives are told to reverence their husbands. Now ladies, how do you reverence your husband? Do you say, shh, it's my husband. I have to be quiet around him. No, you reverence by giving respect. If I, if I told you that... Uh, George W. Bush happened to be visiting today and I introduced him to you or, or Albert Pujols was here and I'm going to let him come give his testimony and he walked up here, I'm sure you would probably give them a standing ovation. Because what you would be doing is giving them respect. So giving respect or reverence is not just by being quiet. It can be done by loud joyful celebration. Go back to Ezra chapter 3. Continue this story with me. Ezra chapter 3. We quit in the middle of verse 11. says, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout was heard far away. It's a loud celebration. Some people are shouting, and some people are weeping. And the weepers didn't say to the shouters, Stop shouting, you should be weeping. And the shouters didn't say to the weepers, stop weeping, you should be shouting. What we have here is people expressing their worship in two totally different ways. And it all blended together into a symphony of praise 
to God. That's my desire for us as a church. That when we come together as a congregation, that if you want to stand and shout hallelujah, feel free. If you want to kneel down and weep, feel free. If you want to lift your hands or clap your hands, feel free. If you want to lie prostrate on the ground, feel free. You see, all of these are expressions of worship to God. I don't like it when somebody tells me, worship this way. See, there's variety in worship. And I don't know what God's doing in your heart on a given day. But we can express it in shouts of joy. We can also express it in humble weeping before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's the expression of worship. Sixth, misunderstanding. It's not just sometimes, it's all the time. Again, Hebrews 13.15 says, We're to praise God continually. You ever notice it's easy to praise God when everything's going well in your life? If you're here today and you've got a good job and a good family and you've got all the money you need and your health is good, you probably have no trouble saying praise the Lord. But if you're here today and you don't have a good job and you don't know where you're going to get the money to pay off your debts or you're suffering from some chronic pain or your marriage and family is a mess, it's not so easy to say, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. But see, we have to remember that it's a sacrifice. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I have to drag my lips to the altar and offer them up to the Lord to give Him praise because it hurts. When Job lost practically everything in one day, through his pain and his tears, he worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. When Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned in Acts chapter 16, they didn't moan and groan about their situation. What did they do? They decided to praise the Lord. And they didn't do it silently. They did it out loud so that all the other prisoners heard them. And as I said last week, I think God receives more glory when we praise Him out of situations that are more difficult. In fact, sometimes when we praise the Lord in a difficult situation, it brings benefits to us. Paul and Silas got an earthquake. Opened the prison doors and knocked their chains off. Pretty good result of a praise meeting. When Jesus preached His first sermon in His home synagogue in Nazareth, He preached so well that they ran Him out of town and were trying to throw Him off a cliff. His text was Isaiah 61, where He claimed to be the One who would bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I like that. Jesus offers you a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. 
But you have got to choose to put on that garment of praise. I doubt there's anybody here who's wearing what you slept in last night. You made a choice this morning to put on clothes. And we can make the choice to put on the garment of praise. And when we do, it replaces the spirit of despair. I love the little phrase in Psalm 33.1. It says, Praise is becoming to the upright. What that means is, praise looks good on you. You know when they're going to take your picture and they always say, say cheese? Why do they do that? Because you look better when you say cheese. Well, say hallelujah. And you look even better. Because praise is becoming to you. It makes you look good. You benefit from praising the Lord. And then the final misconception. It's not just partial. It's all out. God doesn't accept 80% praise. He doesn't accept half a sacrifice. He doesn't want the lame and the crippled. He wants your best. And He wants all of you. A.W. Tozer called worship the missing jewel of the church. And I think one of the reasons it's the missing jewel of the church is because it's a sacrifice that costs us everything. We looked at that last week in Romans 12.1. I'm to come and present my body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That's the foundation of worship. I give Him my everything. That's when worship starts. And I really believe that the key to worship is seeing the Lord for who He really is. Because whenever you see the Lord for who He really is, then you will see yourself for who you really are. And everything will come into perspective. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had that kind of experience in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6 tells us that he saw the Lord seated on His throne He was lofty and exalted. In fact, He was so exalted that it says, the train of His robe filled the temple. He was so exalted He wouldn't fit in the temple. Just the very end of His robe filled the temple. He was so exalted. And then it says there were seraphim around Him. Those are angels with six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And as they did, Isaiah says, the foundations of the temple trembled and the temple filled with smoke. Let me ask you something. Why would holy angels call God holy? Well, the word holy means set apart. And when we say God is holy, we don't just mean that He's separate from sin. We mean that He's separate and above everyone and everything. 
He's set apart. He's holy. He's different from all of His creation. He is the exalted, magnificent One. And so even the angels of God who are sinless hide themselves and say, holy, holy, holy. He is high above all. Angels are pretty glorious creatures. An angel is described in Matthew 28.3 this way. It says, His appearance was like lightning and His garments were white as snow. In Revelation 18.1, the glory of one angel illumined the earth. Every time a man sees an angel in Scripture, he responds in fear and awe. Yet when an angel is in the presence of the Lord, he hides himself and says, Holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, then he saw himself. And his response in verse 5 of that chapter is, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When he saw the Lord, then he got a clear glimpse of himself. When Job, who the Bible says was blameless and upright before men, saw the Lord, this is what he said in Job 42.5, Now my eyes see thee, Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. When Peter saw the deity of Christ displayed in the miracle of the fish, he said this in Luke 5.8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When I see how high He is, then I see how low I am. If angels cover themselves in God's presence then woe is me. But you know, Isaiah didn't have to stay in that condition. Because while Isaiah was saying, woe is me, and shrinking back from this vision of the Lord, it says, an angel brought a coal from the altar and touched his lips and said, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I love that picture. What did we learn in Hebrews 13.10? We have an altar. The angel goes to the altar where the sacrifices are made. This is a a coal that he takes that has blood dripped on it because the sacrifice has been made. God is satisfied. He brings the coal and He touches the lips of Isaiah and says, you're forgiven. We have an altar as well. And that altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. The One who is seated on the throne high and lifted up is the same One who went to the cross. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was nailed to a tree in order to forgive you and me. And I'm sure at that point in time, the angels were more amazed than ever. And you and I should be as well. One of those great hymn writers, Charles Wesley, said it well. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Isaiah saw the Lord in all His glory, saw Himself and said, woe is me. God solved the problem by a coal, blood-stained coal off the altar that covered His sin. And then the next thing we read in that chapter is God confronts the forgiven, cleansed Isaiah and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me.
What's he saying? I'm giving you my all. Wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever you say, I'll do. That's worship. I truly believe that we need a fresh vision of God. We need to see Him as He truly is. High and lifted up. And when we do, we will realize how low we are. We will realize that we are only worthy because of the sacrifice of His Son. And we will give Him our all. That's worship. That's when the missing jewel will be returned to the church. And that's when we will sing with the angels in glory, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory.